Hey everybody, welcome back to Mad Tales. I'm James Knoll and it is October 11th and I'm recording this from Studio X in beautiful Fredericksburg, Virginia. So this is it, the penultimate episode of this season's novel, The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake. I hope you've enjoyed the book and enjoy the upcoming ending. Just a heads up, I'm making some changes to what I post here on the podcast. I will be taking down a lot of the chapters and short stories starting mid-November, but I will leave up the most popular episodes. So far, that's Run For Your Life, The Hive Season 1, Chapter 1, The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake, Chapter 1, Pop, The Catalyst, and Beta, among a few others. If you are interested in downloading any of them, they're already available from Apple, Audible, Nook, Google, wherever it is that you download your audiobooks, so they will be there. I'm already writing the stories for Season 8. The next season is going to be an ambitious one. I'm planning on writing five to eight short stories and adapt them into a full audio theater production, replete with music and foley. I'll still be doing all of the voices, of course, but the idea is to create a hybrid audiobook 30s, 40s radio experience. It's going to be really cool and fun to produce, and I can't wait to share it with you. It will take a while to produce, however, so hang in there. In between, I'm hoping to get the new Silver Hammer Studios podcast produced with my good man, Chip Warren. We'll release the episodes here, and we're going to be talking about all the cool stuff we've done this year, including producing my first short film, Lilith, as well as the screenwriting process for writing the feature-length movie based on that short. Speaking of Lilith, the assembly edit is underway. I already received the first cuts, and I'm hard at work composing or recomposing the soundtrack for it. I'm very excited to get to work on it. We're going to submit it to festivals, see how many awards we can rack up or at least compete for. But once festival season is over, we'll release it into the wild. Right now, you can go to lilithfilm.com. That's L-I-L-I-T-H film.com for more information. I'll drop that in the show notes. And if you want to support the film, check out our sweet merch page. The link for that will also be in the show notes. And finally, if you are a music lover, if you like the songs that I have produced for this podcast and included in the audiobooks, you can check out my new album, Set It All on Fire. It is currently on Spotify under my recording name, James Nermal. That's James, J-A-M-E-S-N-R-M-L. Or you can check out the link in the show notes, too. That's it for now. Enjoy the second to last chapter of The Rabbit, the Jaguar, and the Snake. The Snake. Five. Kabata stopped speaking. He seemed pensive, as if digging into painful memories. After a moment, he looked up and noticed the darkening sky. The wind that drove across the barren desert beyond turned cold, so he ordered his servants to add more torches and refresh those that had gone out. He added more logs to the fire, stoked the flames so that they were so high that Kuwadal and Zulak had to move back a few feet. Kabata swept his arms into the air. A good fire is a gift from the hummingbird! He waved a hand in the air. Let me finish my story. But first, more to drink. He clapped and called out to his servants, who hurried forward with cups filled with pulk. Kabata gulped his down, spilling some in his beard. 
then motioned for more. An old man tottered forward with a clay pot, and Kabata glared at him. Not that. The other brew. From the city. The old man blanched at his error and bowed as he retreated. Come, come, Kabata called. Bring me the special brew. A young woman came out from the building holding a pitcher. She glanced up at him coquettishly. A smile tugged at the corner of Kabata's mouth. You may put that down, my dear, he said, and she did, bowing a little. He watched her swish back across the garden. She knew he was watching and exaggerated her walk accordingly. He took a final swig before turning back to his guests. He leered at them, gesturing at her retreating form with his cup. Some of the liquid sloshed over the edge. He appeared a little put out when he saw Kawadal had not touched his drink. You don't like it? Forgive me, Kabata, but I'm still feeling weak. Of course, of course, but maybe it's too sweet. Here, you must try this. He picked up the pitcher. Dump that, dump that, dump it in the plant. He looked around guiltily. Quick, my gardener is a beast. If he sees you, amused, Kuwadl dumped his cup in the plant next to him. Zulok merely finished his. Ha ha, Zulok is a man who likes to drink. Here, hold them out. They did as they were told, and Kabata filled their cups with a thin-looking liquid, amber in color. Kuwadl held his up to his nose and sniffed. It didn't smell bad, but it was strong. He and Zulok each took a tentative sip, then held the cups out in front of them, pleasantly shocked. Ha-ha, yes! Different, isn't it? I don't know how to describe it. Bitter, fruity, spicy, and delicious. Kuwadl took another drink, a larger one this time. The flavors played on his tongue exactly the way Kabata described it. He held up his cup as a salute and put it on the adobe under his chair. Kabata watched, disappointed, but he recovered quickly. You'll drink when you're ready. I drink too much, or so that witch keeps telling me. So, now I will finish my tale. He took a seat on the other side of the fire, which had died down some. Jahar, the beasts, that terrible night. He paused, templed his fingers, and tapped his lips. If that night was terrible, the next day was worse. I tell you now, knowing what I know, knowing what we found in that cursed city, I wish we'd never found them. Jahar insisted that we head back to the last outpost. We will arrive after dark, but we have to risk it. Risk what? I asked. You said they sleep in the day. They do, but they're awake. They can track our movements. Jahar, you're not making any sense. These creatures, they don't eat. They're gods, the children of the hummingbird. They only need the sun. I thought you said they were only active at night. They are, but they eat the sun like we eat meat. They drink the rays like we drink water. But while they're doing so, they don't move. I don't think they can. They hide beneath the sand. You know this, and you didn't kill them. Jahar wouldn't meet my eyes. He kept shaking his head. It's not that easy. He began to shake again. Jahar, it's okay. No. No. I didn't know what to do. I'd never seen a man in the state before. I put a hand on his shoulder, and he completely fell apart, weeping and sobbing. The men surrounding us looked away, embarrassed. I realized I had a responsibility here. Not for Jahar, but for them. For us. For our survival. I had to stop him before his hysteria spread, so I slapped him hard across the face. I did it again, and his eyes found mine. Jahar, you are a warrior, not some child. Do you understand me? He nodded once, a short, clipped action. I've never seen anything like them, Kabata, he said. They're ruthless. They stalk us and run us down, and they never stop. How is that any different from the jaguar or the sipak? The jaguar hunts for food, and the sipak too. But these, they only want to kill, to tear our flesh. It excites them. I've seen it. They go into a frenzy and they... 
He started to hiccup, his eyes going wide and round. I shook him by the shoulder. Steady, Jahar. Tell us. The way they kill? I think they're using us. Using us how? To make more of themselves. I know what you're thinking, Kawadal. Just like the Tukwani. And that's what I said. We'll simply slash them down. No, Kabata. We have to run. We have to get out of here. They will kill us all. Jahar, we found the city. A city? Yes, a city on the shore of a grand sea. Where? How far away? Not long. Half a patrol. I stood up, resolute, and held my hand out to help him off the ground. Then we'll explore it ourselves, I said. But not before we kill some of these sun demons. We traveled light, with only our weapons, our shields, and water. Jahar insisted we wait until the sun rose firmly into the sky before we set out. We headed into it at first, veering to the north. As light as we packed, we were not used to the heat. Many of us were already exhausted, having grown used to our nocturnal schedule. This was the time of day when we often clambered down to the lower levels of the outposts to sleep. We took frequent breaks, resting in the shadow of a dune. Jahar pushed us onward, insisting that we keep our downtime short if we meant to live, according to him. The sun perched directly overhead, beating merciless and hard upon our uncovered heads and bare shoulders. We grew more and more fatigued. Jahar, however, separated himself from the group more than once, and more than once I thought we were lost until we mounted some high dune and found him waiting at the top, eyes searching the barren wasteland. It was atop such a dune that he implored us to stop and wait. Why here, I asked, draining the last drop of moisture from my container. He didn't reply. He stared out into the desert as if waiting for a sign or a signal. Finally, he squeezed his eyes shut and looked away, grimacing. You shouldn't stare too long out into the desert, Jahar. You know that's Kabata. Come stand right here. He motioned to me with one hand, rubbing his eyes with the other. I did as he asked. I found the nest, he said. A nest? It's where they sleep. The sun demons. He pointed out into the desert, still rubbing his eyes. I looked, but saw nothing. Just wait, he said, anticipating my question. You'll see. I did. I waited and waited I noticed we were looking down into a valley of sorts, high dunes that formed a U-shape. We stood at the opposite end of the opening. I was on the verge of asking him what I was waiting for, when a bright flash of light coming from the middle of the U blinded me. I squinted and held up my hand, trying to block it. Is that them? I asked. Yes, that's the nest. Then what are we waiting for? I drew my makuhito out of the sheath on my back, but he put his hand on my arm. Not yet. One by one. More flashes of light shot out of the sand below. First dozens, then hundreds, then thousands. The glare from the sun reflecting off them so bright that soon it was impossible to look without shielding our eyes. The men muttered to each other, amazed, afraid. I shushed them, trying to comprehend it. The beasts were packed together, vulnerable but for the huge dunes around them. They must have chosen that spot on purpose. We stumbled into a nest like that two days ago, at dusk, Jahar said. We thought it was more treasure, something the Plicks left behind that we could give to Sikakeu. They devoured half of us almost immediately. By the time we made it to the lost city, it was only me and Speck. You saw what happened to him. I did. I watched that massive worm burst out of the sand and devour him whole. If those are the little ones, I said, where do the big ones sleep? As if to answer me, the sand beneath our feet shuddered, and a huge eye-shaped hole formed at one end. One of my men fell into it, and I leaped for him, but Jahar held me back. It's too late, he said. The sun struck the empty hole, and a burst of energy shot out, 
a hundred times more powerful than those that reflected off the sea of creatures beneath us. The ground rumbled awake, the sand shifted, and we were all sent flying. I landed on my back and tumbled down to the plain below, and as I watched, I understood the nature of the dunes all around us. They were the guards, the big creatures, at least ten of them, arranged to protect their children below. The one we were standing on uncoiled slowly, a screech erupting from its depths. It was a massive dragon. It impaled one of my men on its teeth and gulped him down. There was nothing left to do but run. But as I stood up to do so, Jahar held me back again. Watch, he said. The creature wavered there in the air, its eyes opening and closing. Another sound came out of it, a sound I'd never heard before. It was high-pitched at first, full of energy. But gradually it wound down into a deep grumble. And as it did so, the creature lost its power. It crashed to the sand, shaking the earth. Have you seen that before? I asked. Jahar nodded. He pointed at the sun. They've only begun to rest. They need more time. How much more time? The big ones need the whole day. The little ones, though, they could be ready soon. So we ran for the city. It took longer than Jahar remembered, and once or twice he got turned around and had to recalculate his path. The day waned, and the sun fell lower in the sky, and he grew more and more nervous. We can't be out here, he kept saying. They'll feel our footsteps. Where is it? I swear I thought it was in this direction. There was nothing to do but continue. Jahar kept throwing looks over his shoulder as day wore on. We all did, waiting for the end, for those things to rage across the sand like a plague and mow us down. But they never came. Finally, up ahead, one of our faster men cried out. There, there, he cried. I could see it. On the horizon, I saw the outline of tall city walls, dark and dead as the sun set behind it. The barbican, the battlements, the bulwarks, all flying the ragged flags of a people swallowed up by time. Jahar laughed out loud, relieved. He turned around to say something to me, and the laughter died on his lips. They're here, he said. I turned to look, too. Behind us, the sand rippled as the monsters drove toward us, cutting a swath hundreds of hands wide and thousands of hands deep. Behind them, I saw the shadows of larger bulges. We ran as fast as we could. As we grew nearer, I saw the sea beyond, beautiful and red from the setting sun. The city was built on a cliff that overlooked it, and a strong, cool wind kicked up from the direction of the water, bringing with it the fresh smell of salt, soil, and wood. The ground grew harder, and the beast in the lead burst out of the sand to run along behind us. Free of the friction of the earth, they gained speed. One flew up behind me, aiming for my heels, but I took out my makohito and slashed at it, cutting it through the middle. It made a strange zipping noise and burst into flames. Another one shot for Jahar, nipping at his feet. He let it on and, at the last possible second, cut to the right. It dug into the earth and tumbled as it tried to correct its course, giving me ample time to hack it in two as I ran up from behind. Jahar rounded out his turn and headed back my way. One of the men in front of us fell, and I went to help him, but Jahar cried, No! And with good reason, too. In seconds, he was overrun by the beasts, and his cries cut off as they swarmed his body. I felt a rush of wind part the hair on my left, and the soldier in front of me exploded. Those things. They were firing at us. Spears of some kind. Arrows. Another struck the city wall, the shards cutting down another man. And one by one, we were taken out until it was only Jahar and me, running for the gate. Our pursuers knew they had one last chance to attack, and they sent the volley several lines deep. It's odd how time will slow down in these kinds of situations. I've heard it so many times before, experienced it myself in the middle of battle, and each time, after the bodies were buried and their souls moved on to the seven gates, after the wounds of the survivors healed, I could still see the details of the fight as if I were still in it. 
the slashed throats, the gutted bellies, the hacked limbs. Worse were the expressions of the men I killed, a mingled twist of anger and fear, each one of them unbelieving as they paid their blood debt. Even now as I talk to you, years after our flight from the strange monsters in the desert, I can see every last feature of the gate, the riveted surface, rusty and stained green, the lichen and moss growing out of the cracks on the stones, swaying in the wind, the walls streaked with salt and brine, and, as I ducked inside to the black void that awaited inside the city, the look of pure terror on Jahar's face as one of those monsters hit him from behind in the white heat that consumed his body and turned him into so much dust. He's asleep. Kawadal heard the voice from the depths of his own exhaustion. It was Kabata, and at first he thought the reference was toward him. But how could he be asleep when his eyes were open? How could he be asleep when he could clearly see Kabata's lips moving? Uh, I'm awake, Kawadal said. He blinked hard, trying to focus. Kabata seemed irritated. Your friend isn't. Zulok was snoring lightly in his chair, mouth open, head thrown back. The cup he'd been drinking from dangled from his fingertips, and as they watched, a few drops of liquid pattered on the ground beneath, and it slipped off and hit the adobe with a ring. Oh, he's fine, Kawadal said. It was a little touching, really, to see a grown man so utterly in the grasp of sleep. Your story. You haven't finished it. What happened in the city? Kabata weighed the question, tapping his fingers together. For the first time since Kuwadal met him, the old man seemed uncomfortable. His servants hovered in the shadows of the garden as if awaiting an order. Such is the strength of the man, Kuwadal thought, and at such a late hour to have his servants still alert, attuned to his next whim. Kabata took a deep breath and shook off whatever was bothering him. He flashed a smile at his guest. My story, yes. The city's name was Gabriel. I learned this later on. At the time, I thought only of the safety of his walls. I squeezed myself through a crack in the gate. You laugh at that now, yes, but I was on patrol back then, my body a fine-tuned instrument. Now, though, too much polk. As tight as that squeeze was, I still had to figure out how to close the gate, but the beasts would follow. As if to confirm this, two of them burst into the crack through which I had pushed myself, sending chips and chunks of stone flying through the air, peppering my arm inside. The city looked like it had been abandoned for some time, sand piled up in the corners of the walls, the windows of the buildings around me, if they weren't cracked or shattered, were covered in a glaze of dirt and slime. An iron wheel had been set against the barbican to the right, green with age. I had no idea if it would even turn, but I had to try. I threw my body into it, but it wouldn't budge. More explosions at the crack, sparks and shards flew, panicked I lunged again and again, and finally the mechanics gave a tight groan and the gate shut a few more inches, but stopped short. The crack was now too small for anything else to enter, but any breach in a wall is a weakness, and I knew those things would figure out a way to exploit the flaw. The wheel would turn no more. I was not strong enough, so I searched around me for something I could use as a lever. There, sitting under what looked like a fallen shelter, a long metal pole, I snatched it up and jammed it into the spokes, using my body weight to hang from the end. I jumped and pulled and screamed, yet nothing happened. The gate shook as the beast struck it again and again, but it was strong and held firm. Their attack must have rattled something loose, though, because something cracked and the wheel spun half a turn, and the gate closed another inch. It was almost completely closed now. I could see little paws scrabbling into the space that was left between the gate and the wall, the razor-sharp claws of my enemy. I readjusted the pole and yanked again and again, using all my remaining strength, but it wouldn't move. The pounding of the monsters on the other side grew more fierce, the percussions rattling the frame, sending dirt and chunks of rock showering down upon me. And when the first big hit came, it sent me flying. A paw as big as a tree forced itself through, and a mighty mechanical noise filled the air. 
The gate squealed and opened a foot. Two creatures shot inside. I scrambled back, striking out with my maquahito, deflecting the one zipping for my head. The other latched onto my arm and tore it open. More flooded in, and I thought, this is it. This is the end of Kabata. Then a thunderous noise erupted from behind me, as if a thousand boulders were flying all around, and the creatures fell to the ground, squealing in fits, or exploded where they were. The thunder continued, and amidst it all, I struck out with my weapon, unsure of whether or not I did any damage, but determined to help my unexpected savior, whoever or whatever it was. The tree-sized limb receded, and I lunged for the lever, yanking it down. The gate slammed shut, cutting the smaller beast still flowing into the city in half, smashing them into the jam. I fell to my knees, exhausted. After the percussion of the attack and the crashing died down, and the only sound was the rush of the beasts as they swarmed outside the gate, I finally stood up and turned around to see who had saved me. It was a handful of men the likes of which I'd never seen. Their skin was white, and they were wearing the strangest clothing, stiff, formal things that looked uncomfortable and restricting. On their heads were clapped dressings that matched their clothes. Their feet were covered in shiny-heeled skins. Plicks. We know what they are now, but back then... The one in the lead spoke first. Who the fuck are you? He said, though at the time I didn't understand him. I started to explain to him what had happened, but he obviously didn't understand me. The rush of the battle had infused my limbs, and in an effort to try and clarify myself, I stupidly raised my maquahedal and pointed it behind me, pointing to the desert, and took a step toward them. They all took a step backward. Whoa, 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 the leader said. I continued on, trying to tell them, we came from the outpost, those things killed all of my men. But they raised their voices in warning again, and when I wouldn't stop moving toward them, the leader hit me in the head with the butt of his weapon. Kabata stopped. Plix, Kawadal said. Yes, Plix. This was years and years ago, mind you. I'd never seen one before. Never seen their weapons or heard their language. I didn't know. I didn't know what I was getting into. What were you getting into? Loud voices came from inside the adobe, followed by laughter. Kabata stood up, turning briefly toward it. Coatl, he said. I'm sorry, you must forgive me. But without them, we could have never survived. A group of plicks entered the garden, as disorderly and obnoxious as any ever was. They were all dressed in the uniform of the Brotherhood. Cream-colored suits, fedoras, shiny black patent leather shoes or two-tones. The one in the front held out his arms when he saw Kabata. Kabata! Long time no see, huh? How's it going? When Kabata spoke, it was in the halting language of the white men. Go very well, he said. Go very well, huh? Look, it'd be less painful if we spoke in your language. I agree. The plick looked over Kabata's shoulder at the wounded Kawadal and the slumbering Zulok. I thought you said you'd had some prime meat for me. All I see is a gimp and a drunk. These are good warriors, excellent fighters. This one is a general. The plick looked dubious. He pushed Kabata aside and stepped over to Kawadal, stooping over right in front of him and putting his hands on his knees. Kawada watched, amused, as the white man inspected him as if he was an animal. Good shoulders, good build. What's up with the gash on his leg? Battle injury. My crone fixed it. You mean that wheel woman, don't you? Your crones? Creep me the fuck out. The plick stood to his full height. All right. I'll take this one. Him and the ones you got in the cell. But not Sleeping Beauty over there. He spit in his hand and held it out for Kaba to the shake. And when the deal was made, he straightened his suit and tie and sauntered off. Pick up the merchandise, boys. The other plick surrounded Kawadal, who was too confused and weak to fight back. I'm sorry, Kawadal, Kabata said. But the Tequani, we need your army. Well, then you're in luck, my good general. That's exactly where the plicks are taking you.